So there was a little bit of uh, debate going on among, uh, among a few people up at the front here before, recognizing, feeling a little bit that the, the benches were a little emptier today than sometimes. And uh, somebody suggested that uh, it was likely the new bulletin format. <laughs> people had seen it in the email and uh, they just simply could not handle that amount of change. And so they had decided that they would no longer attend our church. I, I really, really hope that's not the case. Um, then somebody suggested that maybe it was the flu. Quite a few people have, uh, have been experiencing the flu in the last little while. And I know that there's homes here where there's only one or two represented where there are people uh, trying to recover at home from this crazy, at our house at least it was, a 24-hour flu that seemed to kind of grab, grab us one by one and, uh, and knock us out. And so uh, whatever it was, uh, I'm pumped that you guys are all here and, uh, and that we are going to get to spend a little bit of time together this morning. First of all, worshiping. Thank you, Kyle, and the team for leading us. Uh, particularly that, uh, that second last song that you led. I don't remember actually singing it together here before. So thank you very much. We may have once or twice, but not, not very regularly. And, uh, and that's a song, I think, is it an originally a third day song? That's what my mind says. And, uh, and I think I heard a little bit of history to that at one point that when they wrote that song, they actually, for each one of those scenarios, uh, the guy that was writing the song had somebody very specifically in mind in his life uh, for whom he was writing each one of those different scenarios. And, uh, and so, um, thank you, Kyle, for leading us in that, in that song in particular. So yesterday, um, Dion showed me a great uh, little picture, uh, an article, actually, uh, I think it was a little YouTube video about... Uh, about humility. I thought it was an incredible um, illustration of humility. A few of you at least will know that right now the Australian Open Tennis Tournament is going on. It is one of four tennis tournaments that happen on an annual basis around the world that are called the Grand Slams. And so I think that's the right terminology, right? The, and, and so um, the Australian Open is the first one that happens every year and it's going on right now. And um, it attracts, of course, all the world's best players. So yesterday there was a little video clip of, uh, I'm not actually totally sure if this happened yesterday or a day or two earlier. There was a little video clip of Roger Federer. He is uh, into his mid-30s and he's been for many years now ranked number one or number two in men's tennis around the world. Uh, everyone in the tennis world knows who Roger Federer is. Uh, you, you, it's, it's a given. He's kind of the, the Wayne Gretzky of tennis. I think I'm, I'm okay by, by saying that. Uh, so there's this uh, security camera shot of him, and he's walking up to the door of the athlete's uh, locker room at the Australian Open, and he's about to walk in when security stops him and asks him for his player pass. And, uh, and he doesn't have his lanyard with him with the player pass on it, and, uh, and so security doesn't, doesn't allow him into the, into the player uh, locker room. And, uh, and this, was the, this was the amazing thing. He just kind of nodded his head and then he stepped back and he, and he just stood there and waited. And this was a security camera. So it's not like he was behaving differently for a camera crew that was following him. He just kind of stepped aside and, and nodded and waited. And, uh, and a minute or two later, his team, his trainers and his coaches came walking down the pathway and they came walking toward the door and they all had their passes and then they showed the security guard the passes and then Roger Federer walked in together with them. And, um, and I was thinking, I couldn't help but think that there's a myriad of, uh, of famous 
uh, athletes, um, dare I say tennis players, who would have or might well have reacted very, very differently, gone into this rampage in front of this security person, well, obviously you know who I am, why in the world wouldn't you let me in, and, uh, and maybe even started to talk about, uh, you know, discrimination and, any, and all those other kind of things. And, and here this guy just kind of calmly stepped back and, uh, and waited. And, uh, and, well, of course, yeah, sorry, I don't, you know, I don't have my pass with me, and so... You know, I'm no different than anybody else. I should have a pass just like anybody else if I want to get in here. That, those, were, those were kind of, there wasn't even frustration on his face. I couldn't believe it. And, um, and to me, that was an incredible breath of fresh air. That somebody would, would humbly just act as though he's a normal person and, and say, well, yeah, yeah, I guess that, that makes sense. No big deal. And so it was really refreshing. I, and as I was thinking about that, I was thinking, well, actually... I think true humility is always refreshing when you see it. There's something about humility that kind, of, that kind of gets us. Just like true acts of kindness. Last Sunday morning we talked here a little bit about true acts of kindness and how those are, are refreshing to see. Are people worth a few seconds of your time with a small act of kindness or a word of encouragement or an act of equality. This is kind of the, I think, the little thing that, that has kind of been speaking to me as I've been continuing this humility uh, thought process is, is how much of humility is actually about treating other people like they all matter, like we're all kind of the same. I, I'm not some person that's way above anybody and everybody else. I'm no more deserving, actually, of being a pro athlete than anyone else is. And just because I am a pro athlete doesn't mean that I am worth more than anyone else or that I should get all kinds of privileges that nobody else gets. Uh, I'm no more worthy of being financially wealthy than, than anyone else. And just because I have a bit more money than some others does not mean that in any way put me into a category of being superior or above anybody else. And just because I have money to go on a holiday in no way elevates me to a position that is in any way superior to the people that are serving me while I'm on my holiday. And, and kind of on and on, I'm no more worthy of being smarter or prettier or happier or wiser or stronger or, or you fill in the blanks than anyone else in the world is. I am one of seven billion special but not a stitch more special than all the rest of the seven billion around the world. I wonder if, if much of horizontal humility is actually kind of captured in this attitude of, of me, us, all kind of being equal. We're all, we're all the same. And so somebody who's, who's humble and, and experiences what this pro athlete did steps aside and says, well, yeah, I mean, everybody else would have to show a pass. Why wouldn't I have to? And uh, I'm not that special. So here we kind of go again. We're, we're going to take another, another run at this humility thing. I, I hope you're not totally done with that yet because I really believe that we're going to take a run at it from a, from a completely different angle this morning than what we've done the last several Sundays when we've looked at it. And so we might do this a little bit backwards this morning. I, I, I don't know if there is a correct order to do it or not, but I, I want to... First and foremost, I want to show you um, the humility terminology in the section of verses that I want to kind of um, um, dissect in a few minutes. 
but I need you first and foremost to see those few verses so that you understand why in my head I'm working with this section of verses. And, and so I want to show you the connection first and then we'll back up a little bit and we'll take a look at the bigger picture. So we go to Matthew chapter 11, uh, verses 28 and 29. Uh, Matthew 11, 28 and 29, as I read, some of you are going to say, yep, I've, I've heard that before. Um, here's what it says. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart. And you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So, there's the, there's the connection to the word, to the concept of, of humility. Like I said, some of you will have will have taken note of or seen these verses before. Certainly these verses are, 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 are verses that have been influential in my life in different ways, and I've even preached about them here before. Uh, but when I read them this week, I saw them from an angle that I had never taken note of them before, and I want to share that angle with you uh, this morning. So you see the words here, uh, gentle and humble, in the middle of verse 29. And, and my question is, and it's really a pretty simple question, um, who is this talking about? And, and the basic answer is actually the Sunday school answer. Uh, Jesus. This is talking about Jesus. It's, it's Jesus. He is speaking himself and he says, For I am gentle and humble in heart. Now that, that caught my attention. I mean, I get it that we're supposed to be humble. Last Sunday we asked the question, what does humility look like when you act it out, practically speaking, vertically with God and horizontally among people? And you guys gave some great answers of what true humility looks like. Um, and so we get it that we are supposed to be humble. I, I, I think we get that. We don't always know exactly what that means, but we get it that that applies to us. But what about this statement here that Jesus is gentle and humble. I mean, Jesus is God. He is gentle and humble? What, what does that mean? What does it mean for me and my life? Now let me do just a little detour here. Uh, Pearl is reading a book. I've actually got it up here. Um, it's called Women of the Word. Women of the Word. That's why I can't read it because it's not meant for me. And so she reads it, uh, actually reads most of what we read in our house, and then she tells me about it, and then I get to stand up here and pretend that I'm brilliant. Um, most of it comes from her. This one is called Women of the Word, and she shared with me some of, some of uh, what this lady, Jen Wilkin is her name, some of what she writes, and, and I thought it was, it, was, uh, it was pretty amazing. Let me just kind of briefly share with you, and then, and then I'll show you how it applies. Um, the, the lady that writes this book, she, she proposes that the Bible is first and foremost an explanation about God. Uh, this, this, the Bible, it tells us who God is and what he is all about. And you're sitting there and you're saying, well, yeah, that's brilliant. Um, you know, how is that so revolutionary? Why would that captivate Darren? Uh, well, stick with me. Uh, the author suggests that usually we tend not to read the Bible that way. We tend to read the Bible with 
our first goal or purpose being, what does it say to me? What does it say that will inspire me? What does it say that will help me deal with life? And according to the author, and I see some validity to what the author is saying, we tend to often be very self-absorbed when we go to the Bible. We tend to, and I, I would like to say that largely it, it probably stems somewhat out of our obsession in our world with being, uh, um, with reading self-help and self-improvement books. And so when we read, we read for the purpose of seeing, you know, what is in here for me? How can this benefit me? How can this make me a better person? And it sounds noble enough, but the author suggests that we do well to force ourselves to read the Bible from a different perspective. The first purpose of the Bible is to tell us about God. The first purpose of reading the Bible is to get to know God better and to understand who He is better. What is this telling me about God? And then at some point, as we continue to answer that question and look at the answers to that question, at some point down the road, we get to the question, uh, and how does that impact me and my life? I want to encourage you to kind of think about that general idea of, a, of, of that way of reading Scripture versus how we tend very often to read Scripture. A principle is a, is a very significant principle as you look at the verses that I already highlighted or read for you this morning. I have to confess that I have always read that little section of verses uh, from the approach of, what is this saying to me? What is this saying about me or about how I can live life or about how life can be better for me? How can this benefit my life? When really the first question is, what is this telling me about God? And the big picture answer here is, this is telling me that God is gentle and humble in heart. A claim that Jesus makes very clearly and directly about himself here in this verse and a statement that's made about him several other places in the Bible also. Jesus is gentle and humble in heart. It's a unique truth that has all kinds of implications, but let's leave it right there for just a moment and we'll back up to verse 20 and then we'll, we'll make our way through this little section. Really, this little section of verses here, Matthew 11, verse 20 to 30, is really the original intent really is Jesus is trying to tell the list, his listeners about who he is. That's the, that's, the, that's the purpose of what he's talking about. He's trying to get them to understand who he is. He's, he's actually not first and foremost trying to tell the people that he wants to give them an easier life, which is how I have often read or come to this little section of verses. I've often read it, come to me, all you who are weary and tired. Oh yeah, that's me. Yeah, I'm going to come to Jesus. This is so uplifting for me and so encouraging. And, and, and there's an element of that. But the first and foremost purpose here is for Jesus to tell the people more about himself. Who is Jesus? And he does that 
with a, with a method, in this little section, he uses something. I'm sure there's, there must be a big English concept for this or, or a big English term for this. He does it by using, um, which in my layman's terminology, I'm going to call contrast. He tells the people about himself by contrasting different things. And so if you go back to verse 20, and you take a look at that first little section from verse 20 to 24, it's not going to be up here, so if you have your Bibles, I'd love for you to be in Matthew chapter 11 so that you can see um, those, those few verses. Verses 20 to 24, uh, Jesus makes some pretty bold statements. He says, he refers to miracles that he has already done while he's been down here on earth, and, and he refers to these miracles that were intended again to reveal to the people more about who he really is. And for the most part, these miracles have been done in the company of Jewish people. His people, people that considered themselves to be the, the chosen ones. And Jesus says uh, about these miracles, he, he says, If I had done these same miracles in Tyre and Sidon and Sodom, those places were picture boys of evil and wickedness. In the minds of the Jewish people, if you want to talk about a place that epitomizes evil and wickedness, it was these three places that Jesus mentions here. And he says, if I had done the same miracles I've done in front of you, if I had done those in Tyre or Sidon or Sodom, those people would have already been repenting. They would have already understood who I am. They would have already decide, made decisions to follow me. They would have already come to me. They would, have, they would have understood more about me. Contrasted to you guys... Not so with you, the religious, elite, egotistical, high and mighty, self-righteous people. You don't catch it. You don't want to get it. You're not open to the real truth because it's going to challenge your lofty positions. And then he says something in verse 24. He says, but I tell you it will be more bearable for Sodom, the absolute worst of the worst of the worst, according to the minds of the people, on the day of judgment than for you. Now, I don't want to overdo it, but what he's doing here is he's fulfilling again the prophecy of Simeon back when Jesus was dedicated in the temple. You are destined to call, cause the falling and rising of many. Jesus is working at, at continuing to create this, this, this sense that everybody is on equal playing ground. And you guys who think you're high and lofty, you guys that think you understand it all, you guys that think you are God's chosen ones, stop and think again because you are no more special than the wicked of the wicked of the wicked in Tyre and Sidon and Sodom. And so he contrasts the wickedness with the religious system that they are a part of. And he says one is technically no better than the other. They are going to be ahead of you on Judgment Day. And the people are going, what? You are crazy. This makes no sense. We are miles ahead of all of those people. And Jesus goes, uh-uh. Uh-uh. Not in my kingdom. That's not how I roll. That's not who I am. I am not about your systems and your elite religious tiered uh, concepts. In my kingdom, nobody is above or beneath Everyone is equally dependent on the saving mercy of God that comes through to the world through me. And he continues on with this contrast thing as he goes into verse 25 to 27. And I'm going to read for you, verse 20, starting with verse 25. 
At that time, Jesus said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and learned and have revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for this was your good pleasure. And so he contrasts the wise and learned with the little children. We've been down this road before in our church. We, we kind of explored it a little bit at our last uh, parent-child dedication where we looked at Psalm chapter 8, uh, particularly verse 2, where David expresses his surprise about the fact that God ordains praise from the lips of infants and children. In our world here, we feel pretty good sometimes. You know, we, we stretch our adult world to allow children to be part of it, and we feel pretty good. You know, we're, we're, doing, it pre- we're doing a pretty good thing. And I, and I need to remind myself sometimes God doesn't allow children to be part of his kingdom. He ordained it that way. He wants it that way. He was intentional about creating it that way. Again, God is telling us, Jesus is telling the people that care enough to listen about himself. This is how it is in my kingdom. This is how I roll. This is who I am. And of course, Jesus does that in many other places in the New Testament. Let the little children come to me. Unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Matthew chapter 18 and 19. Listen, people, I'm telling you something about who I am and how I think and what my kingdom is like. I lift up children. In fact, I lift up anyone that in general your world puts down. The kingdom that I am the king of, it has an inverted power order. I'm not impressed by worldly power structures. I'm not impressed by religious power structures either. And I'm not limited to the boxes that you think I should fit into either. In my kingdom, it is different. And then he comes to this verse 28, where he kind of connects with the people. And this is where we kind of go, okay, good, good, good. So here's something that's for me. Here's something that I can grab a hold of. Here's something that has implications for how I'm going to live my life. And Jesus says, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. And we go, that makes sense. And it does. But, really, this is still firstly intended to tell us something about who God is. Again, it is via contrast. In this case, somewhat implied, Jesus says, I give invitations. Whereas the system that you're used to makes demands. I don't chase and I don't force. I invite. That's how it is in my kingdom. That's how I roll. I invite. Everything the people were hearing from their religious leaders was do. In their day, the message they kept hearing was not come It was do, do this and do that and don't do this and don't do that. That was the religious message of their day. Many of us have experienced at least some of that kind of a religious system. Actually, there there is no religious system that doesn't somehow have an element of do and don't. Whenever we want to create a system, it seems like we have to come up with, with rules. And usually those rules in the religious world at least have to do with do's and don'ts. Sometimes they're written, sometimes they're unwritten. But the message is like it was for them. Do this and don't do that. And that, my friends, creates heaviness. That creates weariness. 
That concept leads directly to another contrast here that he contrasts, and that is in the one world, in the world that you're used to, uh, you're being told you got to work harder. My kingdom, my world, the way I roll, I invite you to enter rest. And the people go, huh? That seems strange. And there's definitely implications for us here, but Jesus was very specifically speaking to a group of people that were weary and tired of doing religion. They feel like they are never good enough. And as much as they try and try and they work harder and they do more and they do better and they're more precise, they don't ever, ever, ever measure up. Listen to how the message puts it. I, I, I really like these few verses in the message. It says, are you tired, worn out, burned out on religion? Come to me. Get away with me and you'll recover your life. I'll show you how to take a real rest. Walk with me and work with me and watch how I do it. Keep company with me and you'll learn to live freely and lightly. And I go, wow, yeah, isn't that good? I will give you rest. The system they were living under was tiring and it was exhausting and they were not living freely or serving freely. And Jesus says, I am a God who does not overwhelm or stress out his followers. It's not my aim to milk every last ounce of energy out of you so that you are ragged and worn, dragging yourself from one activity to the next required event with your tongue hanging down to your knees. That's not me. That's not how I roll. Keep reading into verse 29 and 30 and the contrast continues. He says, take my yoke and learn from me. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And the people are scratching their heads. What? Normally in their world it was all about getting to the top so that you could be the one to tell those that were under you what to do and what not to do and when and where and how. Now Jesus says, no, 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 not in my kingdom. That's not how it works here. Here you get yoked together with me and you learn from me while we are yoked together. And the picture here is of two oxen in a yoke. They would take an older experienced ox and they would put them together with a younger inexperienced one so that the younger inexperienced one would learn from the older experienced one and often the older one would do the majority of the work because the younger one was just learning and was restless and didn't understand how to do it properly and often it would even be harder for the older one because they were yoked together with the younger one and, and the younger one would be derailing all the time or they'd stop altogether and this older one would just kind of keep plugging along and dragging the other one along and slowly the other one would learn how the system works if they were an ox of any value and slowly the younger one would also begin to pull his share and Jesus gives that as an example and the people go, really? What kind of a kingdom king would do that? We work with him? I thought we worked under him. That's just totally contrary to how we're used to having our system work. And then Jesus adds another little element here. He says, and my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And again, the people go, really? Really? I thought living up to the religious expectations was supposed to be hard and heavy and weary, wearying. And Jesus says, no, no, not at all. 
In fact, this easy and light yoke wording could also be translated a well-fitting yoke. It's not a history, or it's not a, it's not a secret that a horse performs best when the saddle fits just right to how the horse's body is made. Years ago when horses were used similar to the oxen in the Bible time, it was very important that the collar that you put over the horse's neck was fitted right for the size of the horse and the, and the type of structure of the body structure of the horse so that the collar would fit in such a way so that when the pulling was done, which was mostly done by the collar, when the pulling was done, the pulling would actually be on parts of the body that, that were made for that. And, and there would not be all kinds of sore points and rubbing points because this collar didn't fit well. And so the, the, that's the implication here is, is that there's a collar, there's a yoke that's, that fit, that, that's made to fit you. And the people go, really? Like you as the king, you as the one that's on top. Well, we don't even know anymore if you're on top. But you're the one that's in charge. You care enough about each one of us individually so that you would actually form, fit a yoke that's made specifically for me. You wouldn't just toss something onto me and then get out the whip and start, and start telling me what to do. And the implication here is that that no, there's a, there's, a, there's a yoke that's fitted for you and a yoke that's fitted for you and, and, and for each one of us and, and, and that's made so that when we do the pulling alongside uh, Jesus that we can actually enjoy the pulling because, because it's, it's made so that it's, it's, it fits. It's quote-unquote comfortable if that's possible as we work. That's how my kingdom works. That's the kind of God that I am. And then the summary statement, which is the statement that I started with, in the middle of verse 29. All of this is reality because I am gentle and humble in heart. That is what I am like. Gentle and humble. The word gentle here could also be translated strength under control. Um, the best way to describe that is the way you hold a baby. Very softly and gently, but not a chance that that baby would ever fall out of your arms. That doesn't mean you hold it tight. I'm saying strength under control. So gently, tenderly, but not a chance that that baby would ever slip away. That's what this word gentle here means. For I am gentle and humble. And the word humble, you might have a little trouble with this. I, I'm still working on it. The word humble here is actually, the correct translation of it is of low position. For I am gentle and humble I am of low position. It's interesting, I know. Not wielding power. In fact, here's how, here's how I processed it this week as I was working on this. In fact, in a sense, Jesus is the lowest of the low because he says, I will become the lowest servant of every single person on earth I will die for each one. It doesn't get any lower than that. 
Our time for this morning is up. You want to know God just a little bit better? For this morning, try to sink your teeth into this truth. Jesus saying, I am gentle and humble. Amen.